This is Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission? To probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On September 20th, 2019, art historian Claudia Brittenham from the University of Chicago met a panel of Siam students and faculty to discuss the unseen images in Mayan lintels. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Siams. Hello and welcome to this edition of Radio Siams. My name is Verity Platt. I'm a professor of classics and art history here at Cornell. And it's my pleasure to introduce our guest for this Radio Siams episode. Claudia Brittenham is Associate Professor of Art History at the University of Chicago. She received her PhD from Yale University and was formerly an assistant curator for Eastern Hemisphere Collections at the Textile Museum in Washington, D.C., as well as a fellow at the Michigan Society of Fellows. Her research focuses on the art of ancient Mesoamerica, and she has a particular set of interests in materiality, especially in relation to mural painting, the politics of style, and the ontology of the image. She's published a remarkable book on the murals of Cacaxla, The Power of Painting in Ancient Mexico, which came out in 2015. And she has a forthcoming book called Unseen Art, Vision and Memory in Ancient Mesoamerica, which explores questions of the seen and unseen, from carvings on the undersides of Aztec sculptures to Maya lintels and buried Olmec offerings. That book project relates to the two articles which are our touchdowns for today's conversation. First of those is Architecture, Vision and Ritual, Seeing Maya Lintels at Yash Chilan Structure 23, which came out in Art Bulletin in 2017. And then John Lloyd Stevens and the Lost Lintel of Kabar in an edited volume called Destroyed, Disappeared, Lost, Never Were, which is forthcoming. So our discussion today will explore these issues about the seen and unseen in relation to Maya concepts of visuality, especially the idea of ichna, or the visual field. We'll discuss ideas about making and ritual, and especially focus our discussion on the idea of lintels. Um, around the table with us today in Cornell's Landscapes and Objects Laboratory are two students who are members of SIAMS, and they will be leading the discussion today. They'll introduce themselves as they um, raise their questions for Claudia. So perhaps I could start, Claudia, by asking you just to tell us a little bit about the role of the lintel in Maya architecture and how that relates to some of these bigger questions that you raise in your two articles. Great. Thank you so much, Verity, and I'm just delighted to be on this podcast today. Before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that Cornell is located on the traditional territory of the Cayuga Nation, and to talk about lintels in Maya art. So you've got a doorway, and on the top of the doorway is um, a large stone or several pieces of wood holding the rest of the building up. And in a lot of traditions around the world, it's traditional to carve on the outer edge of that lintel. We can see this, you know, around Angkor Wat, for example, we get these really beautiful carved lintels in Cambodia. But the idea of carving on the underside of the lintel, that space that you move under as you're passing through the door, that doesn't happen in so many traditions around the world. Now, in, Mes in, in the Maya world, however, there are 
Oh, there are over a hundred lintels that are carved here on their undersides, and they pose real practical challenges. But how on earth would you see this thing that is, crea that, that is created in this liminal space where it's really hard to look? And so as I've been thinking about questions of visibility in ancient Mesoamerican art more broadly, and really thinking in particular about the differences between the way that we experience works of art in museums today and the way that works might have existed in their original contexts, lintels just seemed like a perfect thing to think about more deeply. Um, because when we see a lintel in a museum today, I promise you it's going to be displayed with the figures oriented vertically as if it looks like a painting on a wall. And a lot of lintels really are very satisfying looking like paintings on the wall. But in fact, you want to rotate that in several dimensions so that instead of being parallel to your body, it's placed above your body. And the figures are traditionally then not going to be parallel to your own body, but perpendicular to them. And so you have to do this really funny thing where you crane your head and look and see. Now, in terms of what my lintels are doing in this building, I'd argue that this carving is enacting sort of a series of questions about who can see what and when what, what kind of powers associated with seeing that I think we'll talk about later on today. But at this moment, I think it's probably helpful to mention just that the ways that Maya people think of buildings as kind of alive. And we, we know that there are other kinds of traditions where the door, so even in, in Yucatec Mayan today, the door of a building is called the chi or its mouth. And so we get these sort of body metaphors associated with buildings. And there, there, there's, there's, a sort of, there's a style of Maya architecture in, in, in a couple of different regions in the 9th and 10th centuries where the doorways are literally rendered as mouths with sort of teeth coming down from below. And then you sort of walk in through the jaw, walking on the tongue to get into the building. And so one of, I think, the important things to think about is a building maybe being animate in ways that we don't necessarily think about and how these kinds of carving traditions intersect with those beliefs. Thank you so much, Claudia. Hello, I'm Anna Whittemore. I'm a, a first year student and I study the bioarchaeology of the Peruvian Andes. In, um, in your article on the lentils of Yashchilan, uh, I noted that um, you mentioned in one section that this space, particularly the, the lintels that one would pass under rather than ones that are carved on the outside, was a space used by elite women and that this might have something to do with the pervasive um, depictions of Lady Shook and that Maya women were not typically depicted in imagery. And I was hoping you could talk a bit more about the role of gender and the types of images that might appear on these lintels? That's a great question. So I think I have to begin by saying that the vast majority of images on lintels are images of men or have images of men in them. But then, at, particularly at the site of Yashchilan, there are, we find women represented more frequently on lintels than we do on more public monuments like stone stelae. And in fact, there's one really fabulous example where there's a composition on one of the stone lintels at Yashchilan, at, at, at structure 23, that looks suspiciously like one of the stelae that we see later on, except that the woman has been removed from the scene and replaced with a standing captive, and so, so or a kneeling captive. And so we get, I, I think that 
there are these kinds of gendered ideas about visibility and decorum. So Rosemary Joyce has written really powerfully about there being a kind of normative male gaze in a lot of Maya art where we're thinking about men looking and looking particularly at the bodies of other men. But I think what Joyce misses um, or, or, you know, I, I, or maybe doesn't, doesn't think quite enough about are these cases where we have women placed in these either, you know, on, on lintels or sometimes very high up in mural compositions within a single room, such that they too are looking down on the scenes that are transpiring above them or transpiring beneath them in a way where they're not particularly visible. So I'm thinking about Bonampak rooms one and three, where the, the the throne with these royal women on them is placed up on in, in one of the vaults of the structure. So it's really shadowed and it's really dark. Also thinking about something like Yashilan structure 23, probably dedicated by a woman, Queen Ishkabal Shok of Yashilan, and where once again she represents herself, sometimes with her royal husband and sometimes not, on the lintels of that building. And it's, I think in these cases, precisely because these scenes were so hard to see, that they are places where royal women were able to be represented so freely. And in cases like Structure 23 at Yashtilan, we think to really exercise some control over their own representation. One of the things that Mary Miller has always pointed out about the lintels of Yashtilan Structure 23, for example, is that the, the textiles are fabulous. There is more attention depicted paid to the textiles on this monument than in a lot of other Maya art. And of course, we know that weaving is a woman's activity and something that elite women did. In the tomb that we think belongs to Lady Shok, she's found with weaving bones that say these are, um, and, and with implements that, that might have her name on them. And so one wonders whether that emphasis on textiles is something that she as the patron of this building directed the artists to give particular emphasis to in a way of representing her own artistic labor in these stone monuments. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, my name is Sam Disotel. I am a second year master's student in science and I study um, Haudenosaunee zooarchaeology. And um, my question relates to the legibility of um, these lentils. Uh, you mentioned that they're somewhat obscured and there's dark shadows and um, they're they crane your neck to see them in certain situations. But I was wondering if given perfect visibility, um, which is obviously not the case, how likely is it that a commoner would be able to decipher some of these uh, glyphs and, and drawings? That's a great question. And in the case of Structure 23, just for example, I don't think a lot of commoners get to get up there to have a close look unless they are service staff who are somehow responsible for maintaining this building. So Structure 23 and a couple of other um, buildings associated with, um, with, with female patronage aren't placed directly on the plaza, although there are buildings with carpet lintels on the plaza. They're placed on a, on a ridge right above the plaza. So once again, somewhat sheltered from sight, looking down on more public events. And... But you're right, Sam, that there is a kind of visual density to these images that makes them tremendously difficult to see. And I think that that's the case not just for lintels, but for a lot of Maya art, even its more public iterations. So stone stele, 
you know, we, we talk as art historians and as, as scholars of ancient Mesoamerica about the tremendous naturalism and legibility of Maya sculpture. But when I, what I discover when I teach a class, a survey in an introduction to Mesoamerican art, is that nobody can figure out these images. Um, and so we even start with, you know, like, where is the head? Um, there, I promise you there's a person on here. Let's see if we can find the person. Look for the ear spools. Between them is the head. And because people, there's a kind of just density and complexity to these images that is very hard to see unless you're trained already in this kind of tradition of seeing. And given the ways that I've been thinking a little bit about to being seen as a kind of vulnerability in Mesoamerica, thinking about if seeing is a kind of power, if seeing grants you a kind of tremendous knowledge, then being seen might render you vulnerable in some ways. And we know that throughout Mesoamerica, for example, there are prohibitions on looking at kings. And we've got the best sources of this for Aztec kings at the time of the Spanish invasion, where people like Hernán Cortés and Bernal Díaz discuss the way that nobody's allowed to look at the king. And then when he walks through the city, someone carries a staff before them so that people can hear and see that it's time to avert their gaze. But we know that this is true for Maya and Zapotec rulers at the time of the Spanish invasion as well. And so I've begun to wonder whether that visual density on a lot of Maya stile is actually partly intended to protect the king who's being represented and perhaps even embodied in that stila. Now, as far as texts go, um, there's some debate about just how widespread literacy was in Mesoamerica um, and in, in the Maya world in particular. And I think that probably real literacy that allows you to both produce and understand texts is relatively limited. But my sense is that probably a lot of people had a kind of you know, partial recitation literacy, um, which I like to think of as about what we can get in a survey of Mesoamerican art. Right? You can recognize numbers, so you can probably read some dates. You might be able to recognize the name of your king and the, the title and the emblem glyph that rec represents the kingdom. Um, but once again, I think that there are real questions about who would be doing this close reading and close looking. Now, there are moments where lintels might have been performed or where a stila might have been performed and where people might read and elaborate on the texts on them in ways that amplifies their, their reach beyond those people who are simply who are, who are literate and have the right to approach. But I think one of the real risks of the ways that we study Mesoamerican art now, and it's understandable, we've got evidence, let's use that evidence, but is that we need to take into account who could understand these kinds of evidence that we're citing? Who could read these fine-grained dynastic histories? Who could really notice these subtle iconographic changes? Um, and think not just about that very small, very elite, very politically adept audience, but also think about how a much wider range of people might have had access to and experienced these works. Um. I found it fascinating in the lentils you discussed that they raised these very complex ideas about visual literacy and textual literacy, but also they're using devices that scramble the texts that are presented to you so that you have mirror writing and inverted glyphs. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about how they fit into this general picture of, of what you call a model of imperfect visibility in Mayan art. Yeah, so, so there's one example of mirror writing in 
the um, on the structure twenty three lintels. And so, so this is a, this. So mere writing in 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 the Maya world basically is a case where each individual glyph is reversed as if it were reflected in a mirror. And there are a very limited number of examples of this. Mallory Matsumoto has written an article summarizing sort of the best eleven the eleven best known text um, st carved stone examples of of this kind of practice. And it seems to me that they have a couple of different things in common. Um, often they are, well, let, let, I'm going to have to think for a moment about what they have in common. So, so in some places, they signal a deviation from the normal way that you would move through a building. And so that they, they're, and, and I think that's really what's happening at Yashchilan, that you're moving um, rather than coming in from the outside, I'd argue that the building would really like you to come from the outside um, from, from inside the building and leave through that doorway. And that's one of the things that this lintel is suggesting. There are other cases where if you have a text on both sides of an entrance, I'm thinking about Copan, um, in, in this case, it's reflect, the text is reflected on one side and so that there, it, it, it provides a kind of beautiful symmetry in, in these cases. But there are also moments where it seems to me that they suggest a different kind of ability to read, right? So if it's, it's one thing to read highly pictorial Mesoamerican or Maya texts under the best of circumstances when you're standing there with your neck craned. It's another thing to even recognize that this is mere writing and that this is what you need to do in order to be able to engage with this mere writing. And in the case of these, like a tremendously long text written in this um, at Copan, one begins to wonder whether the audience for this is really supernatural, that this is not a text that's directed at human readers, but a text that's directed at a kind of supernatural being who has the capacity to see through stone and who might even be able to read that text from the other side as it, and, and see it reflected properly in that case. And so I think that there's, you know, this is, I, mean, I want to stress that this is a really elite, really limited practice. And it's not a sort of universal practice. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that I think scribes in a couple of different places in historical moments decide that they want to do. But if we think about Mesoamerican sight as being especially powerful and especially, you know, the gods have very powerful sight and human sight is never quite as powerful as divine sight. One of the things that sometimes happens is that these visual puzzles posed to human sight, they both address divine audiences and then they allow the elites who know to be able to claim this sort of particularly powerful kind of godlike sight. Thank you. I was hoping that you could talk a bit about the role of artists and those who were creating this type of work, particularly in in light with these ideas about elite site uh, royals being able to interpret these works, their intention for other than human beings, and the implication that at the same time humans who were who were not necessarily a part of the the, the royal the royal world um, creating these pieces and, and understanding them, um, especially in light of one of the topics that came up after your talk yesterday about unseeing and what that might mean for artists. Yeah, so um, what we know about the, royal, the role of royal artists comes from things like Takeshi Inomata's excavations at Aguateca, where he finds an artist's workshop right behind and below the royal palace. And so this gives us a sense of artists as being, 
you know, sort of liminal, you know, liminal people, not necessarily elite, although there are one or two cases where we, okay, the best evidence for this is Aztec. The, 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 one of the, the, the wife of one of the early Aztec kings is, um, is named in some sources as La Pintora, the, the paintress, as, and so as, 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 as somebody who is creating particular kinds of works of art. And so we can think, I think particularly calligraphy is a really good elite practice throughout Mesoamerica. And art, but artists are not necessarily drawn from the elite, but they have this kind of really special access to the Maya court. And this, this placement of this, this artist workshop at, 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 at Aguateca seems to emblematize that kind of perfectly for me. Um, and their artists are also real participants in, in, kind of, in, politi in political diplomacy. One of the things that um, rulers at Yaxchilan and Piedras Negras are doing in the eighth centuries, they're sending their artists out to subsidiary sites that are allies of both of these cities, allowing or, allowing or ordering them to make works of art for local rulers, um, which they'll then sign. And then the artists are also able, in, in a very limited number of cases, to sign their works and put their own names on those works. And Steve Houston has co um, compiled a list of all of the sculptor's signatures and, and the painter's signatures that we see. And it's clear that this act of sort of authorial expression of autonomy is present, but is under very limited and tightly controlled political circumstances. So what Heston argues is that painters get to sign and, and sculptors get to sign their works under particular kings at a place like Piedras Negras. And so that this is not pure artistic autonomy, but once again, something that's controlled and tightly collaborative with the royal court. Um, now the question, and so I think it's, you know, I've, as, as I've been thinking about who can see a work of art perfectly, given how difficult it was to see many works of things that we now want to call art in Mesoamerica in their original contexts, we know that the artist can see in the moment of making. It's very hard to make your work of art without looking at it. There, I'm sure there are traditions somewhere where that's done. I mean, and, and we know that in the 16th century, Maya sculptors are working in ritual seclusion when they're making sacred images, so that they will go, um, this is from Diego de Landa's Relación de las Cosas de Yucatán, that the artist would go sit in, you know, would go to a specially placed building in isolation and um, fast and let blood and have sexual abstinence for the period of the making of the work of art. And Londa says, you know, nobody ever wants to do this. The artists, you know, <laughs> always try to make excuses so that they can't do this kind of work because it's a really heavy ritual undertaking in order to be able to do this. And, and Landa also says, and we see images of this in the Madrid Codex, for example, that those works, as they're being made, are stored in darkness. They're stored in jars or something between episodes of making. So the, the visibility, particularly during that process, is a very risky and complicated thing. And so, you know, so that the artist is somebody who's taking on tremendous risk in order to do this kind of work. And so this question of who knows about a carving that's difficult to see. Um, well, certainly the artist, but what we hear from Landa is that it's not just the artist isn't the only person who is going into this into seclusion, right? That there are certain ritual specialists who are also going to be there to provide support at appropriate moments during the making, and that the patron might drop in and check on the making at other moments as well. And so we think about that view in the workshop as one that's distributed, that's not just makers, but that's also patrons, ritual specialists, support staff, various other kinds of people have that view. Now, how does that knowledge spread? 
And does that spread? Um, are there moments where artists are enjoined to silence about what they've made or what they've seen? And I see actually a real sort of historical development over, of, over the trajectory of Mesoamerican history about this. So some of the earliest examples of unseen art in Mesoamerica um, are these giant buried mosaics made by the Olmecs at Laventa, so about 700 to 400 BCE. And these seem to be really communal offerings, particularly at the beginning. It takes every able-bodied person in the community to get these hundreds of thousands of cubic feet of earth and all of these tons of greenstone into these configurations. And they're relatively large and they're not in entirely public, but relatively public places. So you can think about making and then concealing this work as something that binds the community together. Everybody knows, everybody, everybody sees, and then it's covered. And if you knew or you saw or your parents told you about seeing, that's something that distinguishes you from outsiders who can't see and can't know. By the time we get to the Maya, okay, so we're a thousand years later, a little, maybe a little more, you know, the thing about these lintels is that they're never really invisible, that they're, they're, they're hard to see perfectly, but you can see that there is carving. And, you know, in certain kinds of light, you can really make out a lot. In other kinds of light, you can just see that there's something happening. And so there, I don't know to what extent artists would be really constrained to ritual silence. But I think that that's really an issue by the time we get to the Aztec Empire, right before the Spanish invasion where here I found carvings on the undersides of sculpture to be really a late imperial tradition. And there, where this question of who knows and who can see really seems to be about imperial power. I really love this idea that um, Adam Smith brought up after our talk last night, that maybe the artists would be ordered not to know or not to see after having made this thing, and so that that kind of knowledge was, at least notionally, really only restricted to the elite. And I think that these questions about who can see, but who is allowed to see and allowed to claim that knowledge of sight are really powerful and important ones. But I also think that about all these images of restricted visibility, rumor spreads. And rumor is tremendously powerful. And I think one of the things that we have to think about, in particular as art historians, but also as archeologists, is the way that works of art circulate verbally as well as visually. I think we may be now with, you know, Instagram in the first moment where images circulate more freely than words about images. But before this, you know, for everybody who is able to see a work of art, there are more people who would have, have an experience of a work mediated through text or mediated through storytelling or mediated through gossip. And so to think about what's the difference between the visual circulation and the kind of looking that we do as art historians or scholars of ancient art and all of those other ways that knowledge about works of art would have circulated. Could I jump in there and ask a question? Um, within the traditions that you study, is there any kind of technology of reproduction? So you're equivalent to mold-made figurines that, that would also be a method of distributing visual yes. data and experiences? Yeah, no, and we absolutely get mold-made figurines, really starting with the great city of Teotihuacan that thrives between about 1000 to 550 CE in central Mexico. And one of the things that's really interesting is that mold-making seems to have spread pretty quickly from Teotihuacan to other parts of Mesoamerica. And yet there are a couple places, um, there's a group of figures at Cacaxla that seem to be one of the, the examples of this, where there are mold-made components of these, of these sort of medium-sized clay figures, but they're one-offs. 
as far as we can tell. So that people are using something about that effect of mold-made finish to refer back to the city of Teotihuacan rather than using the sort of reproductive capacity of, 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 of mold-making. When we get to Maya figurines in the 7th and 8th centuries, people are using molds, but they're using them as a foundation for some and images that can then be modified later. So um, Mary Miller has been doing this great work on um, what we call Haina figurines because the earliest examples were found on Haina Island. And with these figurines, she's been able to identify different figures made out of the same mold, but then that have different kinds of jewelry and different kinds of headdresses and different kinds of paint applied to them afterwards. So that while there is this kind of reproductive capacity, and I do think that there are moments where there's something like surmoulage, right, where you're taking you're making a mold from an existing figurine and then being able to transform that in different ways. It's never used as a kind of technology for perfect replication. The other thing that we have in Mesoamerica, a lot of our stamps, either roller stamps or sort of square stamps, um, and it's not clear whether these would be used for body paint or for textiles, but that's another place where you do have a kind of more perfect re replication. Um, thank you. Um, so I'm particularly interested in topics of um, like status, as you had previously mentioned, and you equate um, sight with knowledge and privilege, and you spoke a great deal about that. Um, and I want to kind of bring out my archaeological scientist bias mm -hmm. um, and ask if um, through maybe... Um, analysis of, of burials, isotopic analysis of these artisans, um, zooarchaeological analysis of their domiciles. Is it clear that they have some kind of wealth or status or privilege? Are they afforded better foods? Are, do they have better diets? Do they have more or fewer cavities? Is there some evidence of that? I wish that I had better evidence to answer this question, but in fact, it's been very rare to identify artist workshops in the archaeological record. So Takeshi Nomata's discoveries at Aguateca, oh, it's maybe it's um, 15, 20 years ago by this point, were so exciting because this was one of the first times that we were really able to feel like, yes, this is an artist residence. Um, there are you know, a couple workshops that are found at Teotihuacan. Um, there are different kinds of art making, and I think it's important to talk about that. So, so what we find at Aguateca is, at least in part, you know, very elite stone, um, you know, working in very fine stone and shell. Um, in other cases, um, figurine making seems to be, for example, much more widely distributed. Um, Christina Halperin's work is really helpful for, for thinking for thinking about this. Um, so, I do think that there is some evidence that at least these kinds of elite work come with more elite status. But I don't think we have necessarily a really sort of big or satisfying enough sample yet to be able to talk about global patterns. Thank you. Could I bring us back to the question of lintels? Yeah. Um, I found your article fascinating in the way that you evoke this idea of a kind of an embodied experience of, of the architecture and the way that that related specifically to ritual processions and um, highly specific modes of viewing and experiencing um, as one moved through these spaces. And that idea of the lintel as, um, as a liminal 
object is fascinating. And I wondered, how does that relate to a, kind of a broader architecture of boundaries and thresholds and, um, and framing that we find within the Maya tradition? Right. So as I said earlier, that there are a lot of ways that doorways are marked as special places, and that's in, 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 in not in mostly in the Maya tradition, but there are a couple of other examples. Um, we were talking last night about the Aztec cave temple of Malinalco, for example, which is carved out of living rock, and the doorway is carved with the glyph for a mount, um, for a cave, which is itself a kind of um, animate being, and and then you sort of walk in on the tongue forked tongue of the cave and so you're like literally entering the earth in this case and there are once again these kinds of doorways that are also giant mouths at in the Rio Beck um, and Chinese regions in, um, in in the Maya world although the earliest example comes from the site of Copan all the way down in Honduras and so we, we think that, that there are these places where architecture is rendered as animate there are also these places lintels are also a way of making doorways special and a lot of lintels contain information about the dedication of the building. And in, in some cases, you know, we call it dedication. And this is one of the things that, you know, dedication is a very vague word. Um, ded who's dedicating what to whom? Um, and I wonder whether, you know, consecration or ritual activation might in some ways be a better way of talking about these buildings. And the buildings are often given names in that moment. And, you know, that that act of naming makes them kinds of social actors. And so that once again, this is, it's, you know, it's, I don't know that it's quite as simple as being apotropaic, the way that, you know, you might think about other kinds of lintel traditions being, but they are really marking and complicating this boundary. And I think that one of the things, you know, and I don't think that this is an account that any Maya person would give, but one of the things that those lintels, the carved lintels are doing is that they are slowing you down as you walk through the, into the building. And that they, you know, that you stop and you look, you experience your own vision changing as you move from the bright sunlight outside into the dark interior of the building. And so you experience very imperfect vision. And so the lintel's kind of, and you're, you're being looked down on by somebody carved on the lintel. And so that lintel really puts you in your place as you're moving into this space. And I think that, really thinking about that kind of embodied experience is tremendously important. The ways that we experience art now as scholars or just as, as people are really different, right? We see disembodied images on a screen. We see flat things on the page of a book. We stand in a museum where there's really no sound or very little sound permitted and you know temperature and smells are very carefully controlled. And this is not the way that any ancient art was ever experienced. Ancient art was always experienced with bodies. A lot of, of ancient art, Mesoamerican art particularly, is, in, is demands a kind of bodily engagement. And so lintels are one thing, right? You know, you, you, your physical posture changes to engage with that lintel. But if we think about something like a painted Maya vase, for example, um, you have to turn the vessel in your hands in order to see the entire scene on it. And that scene actually often does very clever things with the, the way that time becomes an element of that work of art. So Brian just presented one example where it's a scene of a, oh, it's, it's, it's an old god being pulled out of a shell 
And, um, and then there, and, and so you look and that's what you see at first and then you see the hand of the other figure and as you turn the vessel, you see the hand of the figure who's pulling him out. And as you continue to turn the vessel, you see the knife that he's holding in the other hand. And so that there is this kind of narrative time unfolding here and that what you can see as you, you know, echoes the, the sort of privileged knowledge that different people have of the scene as time is going on. And of course, this is a vessel that you'd lift to your lips and drink. And so one of the things I think that's also really important to think about is this idea of time being part of the experience of a work of art. That, you know, our normative idea in the West, I think, is a framed canvas painting, and you can see the whole thing at once, and, and so then you can see and you can know everything. And yet the normative experience in Mesoamerica, particularly for Maya art, is that you can't see everything at once, and you can't see everything well, and that time and movement are what make allow you to experience the whole work, and so then you have to put it together in your head again afterwards. I was struck, in speaking of time, by the way, that so many of the scenes you discuss may be commemorating an act in the past, such yes. as the dedication or consecration of the building, but are also anticipatory as well, and that they're looking forward to future events such as warfare or vision or encounter with the gods. Yes. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that's most exciting about the Structure 23 program is that the way that you move between the past inside the building, where these lintels are showing retrospective scenes from the king's accession um, and other sort of ritually significant events, and then what's on the outside of the building, which is really only information about the building's own dedication. And so that there's also this kind of split of audiences. That, you know, if you're only allowed on the plaza or on the, that platform outside, what you get to see is that the building was dedicated. And you knew that already because it exists, therefore it must have been dedicated. Whereas it's only the people who go inside who have this privileged view of the sort of these female spaces and these female rituals and these sort of, and these sorts of past events. And so that there, and then there are a number of Maya works of art that also make predictions about the future, right? And some of them about predictions in the very, very deep future. We might remember some of those predictions from the 2012 craze, which was, in fact, covered extensively on a number of Maya's, Maya stile. But some of these Maya texts actually predict things trillions of years in the future as well. And, um, you know, like beyond you know, what we think of as the heat death of the universe, as, as, as David Stewart has, has demonstrated. And so there's this implication sort of a much, much larger cycles of time. And, and so Mesoamericans, um, have, like, so the Maya have two different calendars, have a lot of different calendars. And some of those calendars are cyclical, and some of those calendars are linear. And so that one has a sense both of there being analogies between things that happen at the same moment in the calendar in different cycles, and then also the sense of sort of the inexorable progression of time. And so those, those kinds of like in kind moments, those moments where you find relationships between one cycle and the next, these kinds of historical analogies are, are, are I think, a really powerful way of thinking for Mesoamericans. That ties in really well with the question I was going to ask next anyway, which is about time and the enduring nature of these works of art, um, particularly as in that article on Stevens, you talk about the continuing relationship between the um, communities and these works of art. And I'm really curious about how um, relationships with space, with place, with the time settings in these 
artworks continued through time and perhaps the intentionality in creating these works of art might have had a relationship with these ongoing relationships of safe place time? Yeah, well, there's so many different scales that you can talk about that question, right? So, so that within Mesoamerican history, there are a lot, there are a fair number of moments where people are making archaizing monuments that are looking back to their own past or to somebody else's past that they'd like to claim as their own. And so in the Maya world, for example, in the 8th century, we have a lot of monuments that are put up that refer back to the moment of um, intense Teotihuacan presence in the Maya world in the 4th century. And at this moment, though, this doesn't seem to be, I mean, Teotihuacan's gone. You know, Teotihuacan is largely abandoned by this point. Okay, there's still 30,000 people living there, but it's not the power that it used to be. And so what you see in that case seems to be really as much about this Maya past. You know, this, this is what my ancestors did as about anything else. For the Aztecs in the 14th and 15th centuries, they're making things that are very obviously copies, but also adaptations of the works of art of Teotihuacan or of Tula, so of other city-states that had risen and fallen centuries before the Aztecs came to power. So that there are these moments where people really have a kind of historical consciousness in Mesoamerica and, and, and have performed a kind of indigenous archaeology, right, where they are somehow encountering remains of their own past. But it's also true that a lot of ancient Mesoamerican cities continue to be touchstones for modern indigenous people today. And so at the site of Bonampak, for example, um, we know that Lacandon people were coming and leaving offerings and making offerings there well into the 20th century. And so one of the challenges of working with these Mesoamerican sites is to be able to think about and respect their meaning for indigenous communities. Um, in Guatemala, for example, there are modern altars set up in front of a lot of in a lot of plazas of Maya cities so that indigenous people can come and perform ritual where they want to. And that's and 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 you know, in fact, you know, the, the, the rules of the National Archaeological Agency say people absolutely have the right to do this. And I think that that's actually quite a wonderful thing. Um, so I'd like to shift to more of a curatorial aspect. Um, earlier you mentioned that the lintels are displayed vertically, like very legibly, to a Western audience in a museum. Um, I'm wondering if they were displayed that way initially because of maybe a lack of understanding of the, you know, the actual like embodied context of it, or if it was just because it's more clear to um, you know the average Western viewer. Well, a number of lintels were found in situ at the moments of their earliest discovery, right? And you know, so John Lloyd Stevens finds two lintels in situ in at Ushmal and Kaba and um, hires people to hack them out of the doorways with crowbars. So he cannot plead ignorance about where what kind of architectural context those objects would originally have had. But I think that this is you know. This is really one of the risks of a modern definition of art is that it takes things that were not art or, you know, were not meant to be seen in museums in their original context, whether they're art or not, depends on a much larger set of debates, and makes them look familiar to us, makes assimilates them to categories that we're really familiar with already. I think Carolyn Dean has an article called the art in the art journal called The Trouble with the Term Art, which is really superb on this topic. Um, Shelley Arrington's 
What Became Authentic Primitive Art is another book that I think is really good on this topic. And, you know, it's a complicated question, you know, because if you don't choose not to call these things art, then that is a you know, very deliberate choice that can become fodder for arguments about the cultural achievement of non-European people in very problematic ways. But on the, and so I, you know, and I, I, I'm still gonna call myself an art historian, although I know some colleagues have moved to being historians of visual culture and sidestepped a number of questions about, well, does this count? Um, but what I do think is important is always to be thinking about the distance between our modern category, our modern experiences of viewing, and what that ancient embodied experience would have been. And so to talk, not just, you know, you might be in an art history class and you might really be wanting to assert that, you know, this is, this is art, but let's also talk about a lintel as a pakabtun, a face down stone. And what that, you know, to use those emic terms whenever possible to acknowledge that some of these objects that we now look at in museums were ritual actors, that they were, animate in some way that they were they were sacred they were participants themselves and to really talk about and expose the tension between those two different ways of seeing and understanding so in your article on the lost lintel of kaba you talk about how john Lloyd stevens took this rare wooden lintel from its site back to new york where it was subsequently destroyed in a fire and um, you start to reflect on the, the complications of that collection history and the bringing of these objects to the United States. And I, I wondered if you could say a little bit about where your particular field within art history is right now in considering those bigger concerns about the ethics of collecting in relation to museum archive in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's been, this is something that's been really extensively discussed with relationship to modern collecting in the last couple of, or, you know, last maybe four or five decades, you know, it's really been clear that the art market is fueling looting that is destroying tremendous amounts of really invaluable information. That when somebody takes a bulldozer to a pyramid in the hopes of finding a tomb underneath so that you can take out the three best preserved vessels and sell them on the art market, it does irreparable cultural harm. And I think, I think there's really a growing consensus in our field that there are lots of things that we shouldn't be collecting anymore. And, you know, very important to respect cutoff dates on, um, on, on UNESCO heritage. Um, what I think we haven't reckoned with enough yet is what the early collecting in our field looks like and what are the colonialist, um, you know, what are the ethical implications of this really early collecting? And that goes back to, you know, those first moments of gifts that are being given or maybe not so freely given um, at the moment of this, um, the Spanish encounter and the Spanish invasion that so, you know, that there are more Mesoamerican books that exist in collections in Europe than there are in Mesoamerica. And a lot of them were, you know, some of them were given as gifts, some of them were brought back as curiosities, but, you know, we have you know, the, the, the Borgia, the Borbonicus, we have all of these books that are named for their European collectors or the collections that they ended up in. And, you know, there's been a move to say, let's give these codices indigenous names, for example. Um, the ways that Maudsley brought, for example, the Yashtilan lintels back to the British Museum are really worth talking about. Um, he knew 
that he he knew that what he was doing was shady at the moment that he was doing it. And so he gets permission from Guatemala, even though they are on the Mexico side of the border, in order to export them. Exactly, like the exactly. yes. Yes, and it's, I mean, it's really, it's the same sort of moment, the same sort of spirit, right? And that in order to get, you know, th th these lentils are cut down for shipping, and they're cut down for shipping in ways that destroys information, like... There was once upon a time an edge on one of these lentils, and then it was too thick to be, you know, successfully ported out on muleback, and now it's gone. And I don't see a lot of difference between that happening in 1880 and that happening in 1960, as it did at Kalakmul, where you can see still the bodies of the stelae with the text on the side still visible, but the image on the front has just been cut off. And so, and I think one of the really powerful things that happens at Kalakmul is that they still display the corpses so that you can see the damage that has been done by looting. And um, I, don't, I don't want to say corpses, because I don't want to say that these images are dead because, because, they've, been, because they've been translocated, but that you can, you can see the violence and that you can see the damage in a way that sometimes I think it's easier to forget in museums. Although if you go to the British Museum and you look at the Yashtilan lintels, you can see the cut marks on the side of them. And that's important to remember. I was hoping that we could um, think about this discussion in its very different form in the way that um, traditions in ancient Mesoamerica um, appropriated or archaized art or took art from other locations or you even mentioned the possibility in the article on um, Stevens uh, that these works of art had previously been defaced by other regimes. So put in an entire, completely different <laughs> context, this concept of um, looting or destruction and think about what that world was, what that would have been like in the, the, the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, so they're definitely examples of ancient iconoclasm, right? You know, and so that we get, you know, both a kind of total war that involves the destruction of monuments or carrying monuments from one site to another or forcing the imposition of, you know, constructing, you know, Palenque has one stela and it is put up while Palenque is under Tony Na's control. Tony Na's a place that makes stela, Palenque by preference usually isn't. And so that there are these examples of art being used in negotiations of power in the ancient world all the time. And I think that that's something to be very sensitive to. These questions of iconoclasm, um, so a lot of Maya stele, but also paintings, often have the eyes and the nose and the mouth pecked out, as if maybe you're, if, if this, these images are somehow living, you've taken away their ability to see and to breathe and to speak. And, and in some cases, there's sort of more extensive than damage than that. So in Bonapak in room one, there are these three dancing youths right at the bottom, and like somebody has taken some sort of implement and just like hacked them out of the wall. Um, our assumption is that a lot of this damage, well, we certainly have evidence that this kind of, you know, like intensive engagement with monuments is happening during Mesoamerican history, during Mesoamerican history. So, you know, um, Megan O'Neill and Simon Martin have made really interesting arguments about what happens to all the very dinged early sculptures at Tikal, that somehow they've been involved in other certain kinds of conflicts and sometimes have been destroyed and sometimes have then been rescued and reverentially buried. And so that part of politics is that you go after, and war is that you go after the monuments. 
Then a lot of this later, you know, the eyes and the nose and the mouth, we think happens after the abandonment of the Maya cities, that, or maybe during the abandonment, the people are coming back and are engaging with these works in another way. I still think it's important to draw a distinction between that kind of practice within a society and then these later colonial interventions. And that they have things in common and that they are about exercises of power. Um, but when it becomes colonial power, and, and that could be Aztec colonial power just as much as it could be, you know, Spanish or British, you know, colonialist power, that is involved in a whole wider set of questions. And, you know, and I think one of one of the risks really is, you know, here we've been talking about the art, right? You know, but for every stila that gets bruised and battered at Tikal, we know that people died too. And we don't want to forget those people either in the ancient or in the modern context. Um, so related to the concept of the, the topic of looting, um, looking towards the future, um, do you foresee any kind of repatriation of some of these uh, lentils, like especially the ones in like, the British Museum, or is there a kind of conservatism that's like they're better in our hands? Well, that's why I wrote about this these John Lloyd Stevens examples, right? Because that oh, they're better in our hands is is, is a kind of argument that well, you know, Stevens I'm sure thought he was doing the best thing that he possibly could to preserve and disseminate these lentils, and then they burned. And if he had left them where they were, they wouldn't have. And that's an important thing to say about that rhetoric, that it doesn't always work. There, there are certainly cases where um, North American museums have returned objects to Mexico. So, for example, at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, they received in the, oh, I think in the 1980s, a bequest of objects that had been, of mural, murals that had been clearly looted from Teotihuacan and were able to work out a, an agreement with the Mexican government where they conserved all of the murals and then returned half of them to Mexico and were able to keep the other half in San Francisco. And this for me was really a model of how do you do this kind of work? Um, how is it possible to work out agreements that respect patrimony, that make adjustments, you know, or that, you know, that make reparations for looting but that then also end up benefiting all parties. There are other cases, too, where Maya Stile, that it's quite clear where they're from, have been returned to Mexico or Guatemala. Um, not everywhere is doing these things, and um, there's a lot of sort of studied ignorance in many cases about, well, is this an object from Mexico or is this an object from Guatemala? We couldn't possibly say, and so who on earth should we repatriate it to? But, you know, my real hope is that they, that we have these important discussions and we find ways to acknowledge damage in the past, but we also find ways that, you know, things that we now call art from all parts of the world can be seen in all parts of the world. And that for me is not just about, oh, we need to have access to the rest of the world's art in European museums. But if you've got something that's languishing in a storeroom, somewhere where it could be the treasure of a museum in Nigeria or in China. That, I mean, I, I want to think about a much, whether it's possible to make a sort of much more global, but also much more equitable kind of exchange of objects. That seems like a very important and noble 
point at which to draw this to a close. Thank you very much for a wonderful discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast, which will be recorded and posted in about two weeks, will be with Carl Knappett of the University of Toronto. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening. <laughs>